Would you grab hold of a Bible and join us this morning? We're in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. Hopefully you brought a Bible and you can make your way there as we're continuing our verse-by-verse study inside the book of 1 John, wanting to continue this morning in a way that would meet us. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you, in the chairs in front of you with a page number on the screen. Uh, you can use an app or a church uh, electronic device if you want to be with us, but one way or another, have the Word of God open before you. We believe that God's Word is powerful, that it accomplishes things inside of our life, that it, it just doesn't return to God void without accomplishing that, and so we want to hear that from Him this morning. So we're inviting you to have a Bible open before you. If you're joining us in the overflow or online, we're speaking to you as well. Have a Bible. Join us this morning in a way that God would speak to you through his word. So with Bibles open, let's take one more moment and pray and ask that our hearts would also be open, that God would speak to us this morning what he has for us. I'm going to lead in prayer, but I'm longing that you're praying as well. God, thank you for your word. I think about just quoting that passage out of Isaiah that you said that your word is powerful, that it doesn't return to you void without accomplishing the purpose for which you sent it. With everything inside me right now, Lord, I long for that. Lord, this isn't mine. This isn't my words. This isn't my design. It's yours. The power is that your word accomplishes what you wanted it to accomplish. Do that in us. Cause us to be those who hear your voice. Soften our hearts right now. Break down anything that resists against it. And just bring us into a space that your word washes over us, speaks to us. May it be that though we're here together, that individually you just take your word and and lock it in space in our heart and do that good thing that you have for us this morning. Would you meet each one of us now, giving us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us? We ask for that together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Question. When God speaks, who is listening? Yeah, when God speaks, who is listening? That's actually an important question for us this morning, that in many ways I'm longing that it would be true of you. Today we want to talk about God speaking, or very specifically, God giving us a testimony. What our passage is going to call the testimony of God. That's a powerful reality. The testimony of God. Now, I recognize I'm using a word that we understand, testimony, but I also need to just make sure that we are all on the same page. Because this is church, and because it's church, and for many of you, you've been around for a while, when I say the word testimony in church, immediately you think of a salvation testimony. You think of somebody giving their testimony of what Jesus did in saving them, and that's a good testimony, and we ought to know that, we ought to share that. But the word testimony is bigger than that. The word testimony is used, as many of you watch the news, in court cases, it's used in in just different, you know, just interrogations and things, as you look for that which is a good testimony. What's a testimony? It's a firsthand statement of the facts of what you personally know. Uh, It's a firsthand authentication of those facts. In fact, let me just give you the dictionary definition. A testimony is a statement or declaration by a witness who speaks with authority of one who knows. A firsthand authentication of something. Yeah, that's a testimony. A testimony is a firsthand witness, a firsthand place where you're saying, I saw, I know, this is what I'm saying. Now, 
The reality is the strength of any testimony is really based on the character of the person who's giving that testimony, on the weight of that person who's doing that, whether you can trust what they have to say. But this morning, I'm talking to you about a testimony of God. I'm talking to you about one who is altogether trustworthy, one who you could altogether trust, and God is going to be speaking to us about that. So much so that, quite honestly, that word testimony is used nine times. Nine times in our text from verse 6 to 11. Now, it's translated differently. Sometimes it's translated witness, but the Greek word is all the same, or testimony or testify, but nine times times. I know that that probably makes sense, but I just want you to think about it. If you were actually paying attention to it and you heard it like nine times, testimony, 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 you would be like, okay, okay, I I think I know what we're talking about. I mean, I I kind of, I mean, if you're going to say the same word like nine times, I understand that's the the focus that's in the midst of this. And so it certainly is for us that you and I are meant to hear the testimony of God. Well, before we dive straight into that, before we begin to see what God's testimony is to us, we need to deal with something. I'm going to say that in many ways, as we think about the testimony of God, we need to recognize that God does not need our help. Well, why do you say that, Pastor Jim? Well, maybe you already know, but if not, let me quickly unpack for you that we have a difficulty in the text that's right in front of us. The difficulty is it's different in different translations of the scriptures. If you have this morning in hand a King James Bible or a New King James Bible, you have words in this text that nobody else has. If you're using an ESV, an NASB, the Legacy, a New Living Translation, NIV, all of them don't have the same words that are only found in the King James or New King James. And so, because not everybody has the same ones, let me just put the New King James version up on the screen for you. So the New King James reads it this way, in verse 7 and 8. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. Well, yeah, if you're paying attention, we have a pretty interesting text here. In fact, if you were watching at the beginning, here in the King James and New King James, it tells us kind of that this is the Trinity, that we have this heavenly witness, the Father, the Word, which is Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and they agree as one. Would be a pretty significant statement in the midst of it, but there's a problem. It's not found in most of the Greek manuscripts, so most other translations rightly leave it out. So you would have like the ESV, if you have that this morning, it would simply read it like this. There are three that can testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. That's probably a good rendering of it. In fact, it actually makes more logical sense in the midst of all of it. But there is, again, just that place where we need to recognize the King James and New King James added it. But as you process that through, let me kind of quickly give you reasons why it's not true, why those verses shouldn't be kind of seen as Scripture. For starters, there's no manuscript before the 14th century uh, that actually has those words included. So 1,400 years later. After the New Testament was written, you find some that have these words that are translated there in the King James and New King James. Um, They're never referenced before that. 
There are huge debates inside church history, even about understanding the Trinity uh, in some of the early church councils, and nobody ever quoted these verses. So if 1 John was this amazing statement of the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus all being one, surely somebody would have quoted it in one of those debates. It's never quoted, though the verse before and after it are, but never that, that specific place. It is probably therefore a copyist, one of the people who are copying down the Bible, who thought that God needed a little bit of help. Uh, that thought, you know, it would be great. This would be a great place to talk, just toss in a clear reference to the Trinity. And you could almost imagine it. I mean, there they are writing it, and you have that last phrase at the end of it in verse 8, where it says, you know, these three agree as one. Maybe you'd imagine somebody right, sitting there thinking, man, that'd be a great, if that was like the Trinity. I mean, maybe somebody wrote it off to the side in their margin or something at first, or, or however it happened, they added it. They added the phrase where it says that the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, these, are, these three are one. But if we were to take an accurate rendering of it, we'd just kind of say those are not found there. Those aren't a part of the original text of the Bible. Instead, it should simply read, for there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So again, that's helpful for us to understand, and maybe again, part of the weight that could roll into this moment is trying to say what I've already just said. God doesn't need our help. Understand this, the Trinity is a truth that is found in Scripture. I mean, it is 100% there, that God is Father, Spirit, Son. They are all three one. The Trinity is a part of the Scriptures. We could spend the rest of our morning talking about that reality, but it's not really the focus of the text. But understand this, we did, God didn't need help in that, so this isn't actually there. Now, that's helpful for us so we can focus on what is actually a part of the text, but before I leave that, let me say one more thing. Maybe that was something you already understood. Maybe I just talked about things that you understand about the Bible you hold in your hands, but maybe not. And I'm kind of aware that just talking about this can create confusion. That for some people, they'll find themselves thinking, can I trust this? I mean, can I trust this Bible? I mean, if there's inaccuracies in some texts, if, if there are things that aren't there, I mean, is this a trustworthy you know, just record in, in, in your hands, and I want to say as simply and clearly as I can, yes. Yes, you can trust the Scriptures. In fact, the very thing that we just did, kind of rooting out something that might not, isn't there, only should give you greater confidence of what is there. Understand this, we think about it, and maybe it's helpful to process it this way. For over 1,400 years, the Bible was copied by hand. No copy machines, no printing presses, didn't exist until 1440. So for 1,400 years, every copy of the Scripture was hand-copied. Now, occasionally, if you could just imagine, there are minor differences. There are things that differ in the midst of it, much like if I were to ask you. I mean, true story, if I were to sit you down and gave you something to hand-copy, you would probably mess it up. I mean, some of you are like, no, I wouldn't. Well, you probably would, okay? I'm just, I mean, that's just the, our, our nature of the ability to, to do it. And so we understand how that happens, but here's what I want you to understand, why you can have confidence. We have over 10,000 manuscripts out of the Old Testament, hand copies of, of the scriptures, and they are in incredible agreement. I mean, they, because there's so many, it's really easy to discover what's actually there. 
New Testament even more. We have 25,000 copies uh, of manuscript evidence of the New Testament, places there where we can compare copies of the scripture. So again, it becomes so much easier to say, okay, what might be added? What might be messed up? I mean, there's just nothing else like this in all of antiquity and, and anything else that's out there in the world. Again, for some of you, you're familiar with how this works and, and other you know, writings, you could think about it this way. We would take maybe the writings of Plato. We have seven copies, not 25,000, we have seven. And the earliest copy we have is you know, in the midst of that 1,300 years after he wrote it. We don't have anything for 1,300 years, it's just gone. I mean, there's just nothing there. We think about things like the Iliad by Homer, the, the most other copies we have, we have 643 copies, but it's 500 years later. Earliest copy, 500 years after it was originally written. The New Testament, we have 25,000. And the earliest ones date 30 years after its original writing. There's just nothing else like that. There's just nothing else that even comes substantially close to how accurate, how firm, how trustworthy this is in front of you. Now, yes, there are just a few places where it could be where questions are in different copies, but literally there's only like 50 passages in the New Testament that have any kind of, kind of question in all of those copies. Only 50. Now, that might sound like a lot, but I want to tell you it's not. If you were to put it in some kind of math equation, that would mean you have one one-thousandth of the text is in question. One one-thousandth of the text is in question. Now, the vast majority of those are misspellings, like people's names spelled wrong. I mean, and that makes sense. If you've ever copied anything, that happens all the time. Or numbers. The vast majority are that. Past the numbers and the names, there's really only three texts that have any question out of those manuscripts. One of them is John 8, uh, the woman who comes caught in adultery. The second one is in Mark 16, the, the last closing section there. And the third one is here in 1 John. Now, each of them bear their own kind of weight in kind of, you know, wrestling through that. But the question you have to be asked, okay, which are really there? And we've come, I've tried to tell you that most Bible students, most scholars look at this text and say, now, <laughs> you know, these words that we looked at this morning, they're not there. But hear me as clear as I can say it. There's not any truth. There's not anything in Scripture that has any kind of fearful, you know, if we were to even set aside those 50 texts, there's nothing missing. It, everything that we needed to know is authenticated in other places so that there's no truth of Scripture. There's no, you know, thing that we're like, oh, this changes everything. It does not. And as much as I can say it, I just want to tell you, you can trust this. You can trust the Word of God. You can trust its accuracy. You can trust what's there. You can believe it. If you have more questions on that, I did a whole study on this back when we were doing Mark. And so in Mark 16th, I did a whole Sunday morning study just called Inspired. You can go back and get that on YouTube and follow it. But for us, that's where we're going to leave this thought. So we're talking about the testimony of God, and we've talked about what's not there. So we're going to just even erase that and say, God doesn't need our help. Let's go past it. Okay, so what did God say? What is God's testimony that he wants you to hear? Well, he tells us. Let's go to the end of our text and notice what it says. Go down to verse 11 with me. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Okay, just hear that. He says, this is it. 
This is the testimony that God is bringing before you and I this morning where God says, this is my truth. This is the authentication that I am personally validating for you. This is the testimony, which is what? That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Well, that's what we need to hear. Everything else we're going to say this morning kind of comes around this statement to say, this is what God is telling us, that He has given us eternal life, and the life that He's given us is found in His Son. The life that He has given us is found in Jesus. So we need to hear it. We need to hear what he's saying. We need to hear the, the weight and the wonder of it. And so let's go back to the beginning of the text and notice how he begins to unpack that for us. There in verse 6, actually, let's just go back to verse 5, kind of picking it up from where we left off last week. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who, who came by water, and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And this is this, the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness, and then skipping over what's probably not there, the, the, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree as one. Okay, so now we have it. God is giving us this testimony, and John is recording it here, and he says there's three things that are being laid out for us, the water, the blood, and by the Spirit. Now, I'm just going to pause and say it's a little bit complicated. Uh, just in case you're kind of listening, just know this, Bible students have wrestled over this passage for, for generations, and so there's not going to be any sense that we're going to fully go, well, that makes perfect sense. It's a little bit almost one of those places that you could say, John, just spell it out a little clearer. Uh, you know, and yet there is a sense of, okay, God doesn't need our help. He said what he said. Let's try to make sure we understand it. So there are three things that are speaking to us. Let's focus on the first two since they're kind of put together, the water and the blood. He says, you know, God has spoken to us. This, there's the testimony, and this testimony is in the water and blood. You just go back into the text and see that it's there in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. Okay, what did we just say? Well, it's possible that what John was referring to here is what took place with Jesus on the cross. Some of you would recognize the text. It tells us there in John 19, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing up his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus dies, dies on the cross for our sin. But one of the soldiers, it said, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. So Jesus dies, and the spear is there, and it pierces him, and almost just proof that he really does die. Is that what John is referring to here? Well, maybe. I mean, some would say yes, but if it is, it still leaves itself a little like, okay, so what are we saying? I mean, what, how is the water and the blood you know, what this testimony of God is other than that he really died, which is maybe what's there. Most Bible students would say, no, it feels more, especially as we take the whole weight of Scripture. So what could this be? Well, let's take water for a moment. It's very, very possible that just the weight of this is talking about the birth of Jesus, that Jesus was born, that he came in the flesh, and kind of feel this for a moment. Go back and see it in the text. So we get to the end of verse 5, and we say, you know, but he who believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God. Like, he's God. He's, he's God's Son, but he's the one in verse 6 who came by water. So it could be referring to his physical birth, and that would be something that you could probably understand, right? I mean, some of you, you understand exactly how this works. I mean, when it's that moment that someone's going to have a child, the water breaks, and the baby's coming. And so some would say, hey, that's the picture, that God really did become human, that he became, they were born, that Jesus was born. It could be in reference to that, or, or maybe with it, it might be a reference to the baptism of Jesus, because Jesus literally was baptized. At the beginning of his ministry, he walks through baptism to identify with us, he says, for righteousness sakes. He gives it to us this way in Mark. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's a testimony of God. That's God looking down on Jesus and saying, that's my son. That's my son. I'm pleased in him. He fully has my pleasure in this moment. So it's very, very possible that it's in reference to that. Or maybe some would say it's kind of both included, but the weight of it isn't as complicated as trying to figure it out because the weight of it is drawing us to the life of Christ drawing us to, to, he really did come, live a perfect life, born in the, in, in the flesh, living this human life in, on the earth to pay the price for our sins. So there's a sense that the water seems to be pointing into that direction, into the humanity of Christ, into that he was born, lived a perfect life to die on the cross for us, which would take us to the blood, which we would understand probably pretty clearly that that is a reference to the death of Christ. That is a reference to the crucifixion, that he died, that literally he gave his blood for us. And by his blood, by the cost of his blood, he was able to say it's finished, the price of our sin is paid. So we'd put these two things together and we'd say, okay, so it's the life of Christ and the death of Christ. That God is speaking to us in the life of Christ and in the death of Christ. Now, I want to toss out one other thing just to be you know, give you the full weight of it. That is what most Bible students believe. Most Bible students who have studied this out, most scholars look on this and say, you know, this, this picture of the water and blood are this picture of Jesus's life and death. Some would say it, it is that, but it's how we connect into it. So some would see the water not just as Jesus's baptism, but our baptism. Some would see the blood not just as Jesus dying on the cross, but us taking communion. Uh, that's really a view that's a little bit more uh, kind of within the Catholic, kind of that would, would, would view some of those things as themselves being uh, significant. So it's not a huge weight in that, but either way, even if we were to go that way, it's still pointing to Christ. That said, I'm just going to point, just wash those away and say, okay, here's the deal. He's telling us this is what God is speaking to us. So God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. And this is how he's spoken to us, by Jesus. Jesus is life and death. Why is that so important to say here? Well, part of it is because of the things that John was dealing with in 1 John. If you've been with us in this study so far, every now and then we've made reference to it, that one of the early lies that permeated the church was known as Gnosticism. 
this kind of idea of, of special knowledge or, you know, great knowledge that people had that came and went beyond the scriptures. And it's really not a big deal today. There's very few that fall into this framework of understanding today, so it's not worth a ton of our focus, but it is worth at least noting. What the Gnostics said is they believed that Jesus, I mean, that, that the Christ was really the Son of God, but they had a hard time with humanity. So the Gnostics actually separated it. They said, well, you have the Christ, that's the Christ, that's the, the Spirit of God, then you had this man Jesus. And so they'd say, well, you know, the man Jesus lived until the baptism, and at the baptism of Christ, then, you know, Christ, the, the, the God came upon him, and it was there for three years, but in Gethsemane. The Christ leaves so that only Jesus dies on the cross. Because what they could never comprehend was that God would die. That God would himself become the sacrifice for our sins. Somehow it was just unthinkable to them that it would be there. So part of the weight is to speak into that. And you can kind of feel it in the text. Go back and see it again in verse 6. It says, This is he who came by water and by blood. Jesus Christ not only by water, because again, actually the Gnostics agreed. They thought that the Christ came in the baptism. But he didn't just come by water, but by water and blood. He came both physically and he literally died. So we spend a little bit of time on that, but again, not worth spending more because probably no one in this room is wrestling with that. No one online. But we live almost in the opposite era. In our day and age, it's not that people wrestle with God dying on the cross, people most of the time wrestled, is he actually God? And so in our day and age, people have a far greater propensity to say, well, what if Jesus is just a good man? What if he's just a, a godly man? I mean, is he actually God in, in the flesh? Is he actually that? And even into that, this is speaking, that God gave his son, that, that the weight of this, the testimony of God is that he is the son of God, that he is God in the flesh, come to die for us, and the weight of it is flowing in there to say this is what God is telling us. His message is it is so, that Jesus came by water, by blood, that he lived, he died, that the son of God, God in the flesh is that. Now, that's amazing. That's really, really good news. But add to it, that's what the Spirit is reinforcing. So notice again what it says in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ not only by water, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. So the Holy Spirit comes, and he comes to bear witness. He comes to give honor. He comes to make the focus Jesus. Much we could say about this, but that is actually what the Holy Spirit is doing. When Jesus explained it before he went to the cross, John 15, he said it this way, but when the helper, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, which is exactly what he was just referred to in our text, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He's going to make much of Jesus. The work of the Spirit is to make much of Jesus, to draw us to see Him. In fact, he says it again in chapter 16. When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for He will take what is of mine and give it, 
and declare it to you. He's going he's to make this. What he's going to do in the world is to draw people to see much of Jesus, to, to make much of Christ, to see that Jesus is our everything. That's the work of the Spirit. So how does he do that? Well, you know what? So many ways. It would take far too much time to unpack all of it, but it's enough for us to say he does it by the Word of God, he does it by the people of God, and he does it by his miraculous own just work inside of our lives. Again, just giving it to you quickly for examples, we think about it this way. It tells us in Timothy that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Again, just God's statement is that you can trust this book. This is mine, he says. I inspired it. This book is given to us, and yet he did do it through people. It gives it to us in Peter where he says, For prophecy, specifically the prophetic scriptures, never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't that they sat down and came up with the Scriptures themselves. It says the Spirit of God moved them to write so that the Holy Spirit has given us this book. That This book is about Jesus. Now, it's not only in its authorship. It's how it connects into our lives. It gives it to us this way in Corinthians. These things we speak not as words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual. It says, we're trying to communicate God's word to you. We're opening up the power of the scriptures. We're telling you this. But here's the incredible thing. This isn't a human thing. This isn't something that would work on a college campus without the work of the spirit. We need the spirit of God to connect us to the word of God. And the spirit of God does that. He's the one that takes truth and, and opens it to our lives and, and helps us so that we see what the Scripture is about. So much so that without the Spirit's help, it doesn't work. That's what he says in the next verse. It says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So somebody outside of, of, of the Spirit, they don't get it, and they can't get it. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you had this before God got a hold of your life. You read the scriptures and you were like, this is what excites you? And then you got saved and you're like, this is what excites you. I mean, it's like this is changes everything. So much so that if you're here this morning and the Bible doesn't mean anything to you, that if you don't get it, you don't understand why we're excited about it, then we're just going to tell you you need to be saved. You know, because the Spirit of God opens the Scriptures to us. Now, if He opens the Scriptures to us, one of the fundamental things you find in reading the Bible is it's all about Jesus. Jesus said so. He said, you search the Scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life, but these are that which testify of me. That it would say in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the very spirit of prophecy. That one of the things you discover is always when you go into the Scripture, you're, you're being made much of Christ. You find Jesus to be your everything. You find that Jesus is the full expression of God into our world. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing. He does it through the Word of God. He does it through the people of God. It goes on in 1 Corinthians 12 to say, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. That not only does He give us the Word, but He works in what we understand are spiritual gifts, that every Christian is empowered by the Holy Spirit, but we know what He's doing. He's making much of Jesus. That's what he does. He does it in the word of God. He does it through the people of God. He does it by his power. I mean, this is what he's doing. And so all of this is pointing in one direction, the greatness of Jesus. So that's where I want to just make you pause for a moment and just say, if I lost you, 
I'm so sorry. I, I recognize it's kind of like a little bit technical. And you're like, man, water, blood. And I just like I was trying to, I, try, I, just, I was trying, Pastor Jim. I really am trying. I understand. It's a little bit complicated. But let's just be simple about it. God is saying this. I have given you a testimony. I am telling you something that you need to hear, God says. And he says, my testimony is I've given you eternal life. And that life is in my son. The life is in Christ. That life is in Christ, and everything is pointing in that direction so that we would see it, you know, that through the water, through the blood, through the Spirit, everything is centering on Christ. Everything is drawing that attention that we would see that Jesus is, is the message, that Jesus is our hope, that He's the full expression of what God is saying to us. And this becomes the testimony that God wants you to hear. That in the message of it, what He's telling you is yes. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So, if you hear that, if you're hearing what I'm telling you right now, that it's just not that complicated, life in Jesus, eternal life in Jesus, that's the message. What are you going to do with that? Well, that's what He's going to help you and I understand. So, go back and pick up where we left off. Verse 9 says, if... We receive the witness of men. The witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. In simple measure, he just reasons with you for a second. He says, if you listen to anybody, and you do, I mean, you just do. I mean, if anybody gives you a, like, hey, this is a good restaurant, or this is the news, or this, I mean, you're always paying attention to people giving you just information, and he says, okay, if you're going to listen to anybody, God's witness is greater. That God's witness is more trustworthy. I mean, it's, it's almost just this simple reasoning of reasoning from the lesser to the greater. Of just saying, if you trust anything, and you do, you are always listening to people. Some more than others, because you, you value them as more trustworthy. But he just says, okay, if you're going to listen to somebody, if you're going to believe what somebody has to say, then it should be God reading it again there in verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, and you do, if you're going to listen to anybody telling you anything, the witness of God is greater. He is more trustworthy. He is more reliable. His witness is greater, for this is the witness of God, which He has testified of His Son, that He has given us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. So he just reasons with us for a second and says, hey, you should recognize this is trustworthy. God's witness is better and bigger than anybody else's. And then he adds to it that there's a personal nature to this, a, a way that that connects into our lives. Pick it up in verse 10. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Pause there. He who believes in God, you have this witness in yourself. What is that saying? Well, this isn't saying some kind of emotional response. I think about it if you've ever had, you know, those people knock on your door, uh, you know, from the Mormon church, and they'll talk to you about this burning in your bosom kind of thing. It's as if there was some emotional response you're looking for. That's not this. This isn't anything like that. Instead, he's just simply saying, in the context of this, if you're a follower of Jesus, you actually believe this. There's not anybody in this room who is a Christian that somehow, even though you might be like, okay, I did lose, the whole water in the Spirit did lose me for a minute, Pastor Jim. You know, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're like, 
I do believe that Jesus is God. He lived a perfect life and he died on the cross. Yeah, I believe that. I, I, I've received that. I, that. That's a part of who I am. That's a part. There's a witness inside of me that resonates with me. Is like, I believe. I believe that Jesus really is God. I believe that he really was sinless. And I believe he really did die on the cross. And he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, then that resonates inside of you. You're someone who has believed that. Now, again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't believe that. Because, again, that's not where it works. But if you are, every Christian, in the smallness of our understanding, has at least come to this place that we believe that God has given us eternal life and the life is in His Son. We believe, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. True for all of us. Now, that's really, really good, but let's follow that thought. So every Christian believes that. Pick it up. We'll just read verse 10 again. He who believes in the Son of God has this witness inside himself. Like, that resonates inside of you. He who does not believe, who does not believe God, has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. This is really important. Oh, God, give me help to say it well. There's an unequivocal nature to this testimony of God. There's a place where he's saying, this is what God says. And you either believe it or you don't. You either recognize that God is telling us the truth or you are calling God a liar. That's what he said. He says there's no other space. If you don't believe what God has said about Jesus, there's no middle ground here. There's no ambiguity. Either he is telling us the truth or he's lying. That's all you got. That's the only space you can come. There's no middle space to live. There's no space to live somewhere between those two places, and he locks it down so well. Now, I just believe as I'm saying that that somebody needs to hear that this morning because the problem is that for some people, that's exactly where they try to live. Live in some place where, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that Jesus is good, but I'm not sure I really believe he's God. I mean, I know that there's, I mean, I just, I don't really know and try to find some middle ground, but it doesn't exist. In fact, maybe it would be better if I just spoke it in other words. C.S. Lewis did an amazing job in what is known as his Lord, liar, lunatic argument. That's what I want to just draw out to you for a moment. Many of you guys know C.S. Lewis, an incredible thinker, writer of many great books, uh, living from 1898 to, to 1963, just incredible, just kind of knowledge and, and able to communicate. Now, before I go there, I'm going to rabbit trail on you just for a moment. So I'm rabbit trailing and I'm coming right back. So just follow with me for a moment and we'll come back to this. So C.S. Lewis, his testimony is an amazing testimony. And they did a movie uh, about C.S. Lewis' life recently uh, called The Most Reluctant Convert. And I kind of wanted to take a moment and just say, if you have not seen this it is a movie worth your seeing. Now, if you come here very much, you would know I almost never say that, you know, because it's like, oh, I don't know. Kind of, this one's really, really good. Uh, it actually is kind of a one-man show that this guy used to give. They turned it into a movie, and it's just the accounting from even his own autobiography of his testimony, how he got saved, and he kind of called himself, this is his own self-description, that he was the most reluctant convert, like God drug him into salvation, just bringing him into incredible belief 
believe, and it's a really good movie. You can find it on all the streaming services and, and just worthy of your doing. So again, if, you're, if you want to get it, I would just take a moment to highly recommend it. Now, recommending that I come back to it because part of his story is this very thought. Part of, if you ever watched that, have read his story, you know that one of the things that God did was he just kept destroying everything that C.S. Lewis could trust in, anything else other than Jesus. And one of them was this place of believing that Jesus really is God. And so C.S. Lewis would say it this way. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, this is a really dumb thing to say, and I want to make sure that nobody can leave this place saying, I still believe that. He simply says it this way. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He makes incredible claims, claims that he's the only way to know God, claims that he is the very validation of all truth in the universe. He makes radical statements, so much so, he says he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. I mean, he would, be one, he would only he'd be, he'd be crazy or he would be the devil. He says, you know, you must make your choice. Either this man was, is the son of God, or else a madman, or he's something worse. There's no other choice. There's no other way to go. You can shut him up for a fool, C.S. Lewis says. You could spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. You have no realm to stand there. He says, you know, there is this place. He has not left that option open to us. And he did not intend to. He didn't intend to. There is no grace place to stand in some kind of middle ground in the midst of this. C.S. Lewis would say, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's his own testimony, by the way. I mean, he just struggled. He's like, how do I? It's like, there's no other choice. He either is crazy or he's who he says he is. Now, I love that. It's pretty clear. Maybe you got it just from C.S. Lewis's argument. But if it's helpful, let me graph it out for you. So let's just take one of Jesus' statements. He makes tons of statements, but in this one all by itself, you can understand how radical it is. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one can come to God the Father except through me. That's a radical statement. Just imagine with me if your neighbor said that for a moment. Like your neighbor came to your door and said, I am the ground of all truth. Like, it's me, and if you want to know God, you have to come through me. You'd be like, eh, no. I I mean, just like, I mean, you would understand, like, that's not something that normal people say. Uh, That's not normal conversation, nor is it normal. I mean, this is a radical, life-changing statement. So if you hear Jesus, and he says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, which is what God is telling us here in our text. He says, I'm giving you a testimony that I've given you life, and the life is in Jesus. So Jesus is that. So we're getting that you have two choices. Choice number one is it's true, that Jesus is saying it and it is what it is. Choice number two, it's not true. There's no other choice. 
It either is true or it's not true. Either he is what he says he is or he's not. Now, if it's not true, well, your first choice is to say, well, he knew it wasn't true. So he said it for a fact. He said it to motivate people, but he knew when he said it, it wasn't true. That would make him a liar. That would make him the worst of all deceivers. If he said, I'm the way, truth, and life, and he knew it wasn't true, that makes him the worst deceiver that's ever existed. That makes him somebody that's absolutely lying. Well, maybe he said, well, I, maybe he thought it was true, but it just isn't true. Maybe he said it, but he didn't know it was not true. Well, that would make him a lunatic. That would make him just crazy to think that he's the very ground of all truth and the ground of all access to God. I mean, if he believed it and it's not true, then that makes him crazy. So it's either not true, and if it's not true, he's a liar or a lunatic, or it is true. And if it's true, then he is who he says he is. If it is true, he's the Lord. And what I need you to get, what I want you to understand, is there's no other space to stand. You have no other choice. What it's trying to say in our text right now is you either believe God or you call him a liar. That's all you got. That's all you got. You can't live any other space. You can't say, well, I kind of think he's a good guy. No, you can't live there. God has destroyed that argument. He has destroyed it and said, you know, you have a choice. You either God is what he says he is or he's not. And you can't live any other space in between this. There's an absolutely unequivocalness to this. I mean, you either believe God's testimony that he has given us life in his, in his son, or you tell God you're lying. I don't believe you. I, I don't think you're telling me the truth. It's not there. But guys, it is there. In fact, just notice with me what it says. So we get this incredible place, just reading there in verse 10 for just context. He who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given us in his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He, verse 12, who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It couldn't be more simple than that. It couldn't be more clear than that, that this is actually a fact. God has given us a testimony. If you believe him, you have life. If you have Jesus, you have life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. Couldn't be more simple than that. It could not be more clear than that. But it's exactly there where he's just pleading with us to understand that we think about everything that's there. So we just think about this argument of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And what we're simply telling is if you don't believe it, whether you think he's lying or crazy, that makes you lost. That makes you outside of where God has for you. And to that we plead for a moment. Now, it might really be here in this room that you're there, that this is you this morning. Maybe you're in the overflow, you're online, and, and you're kind of in this space because you really do try to live there. I mean, if I sat down with you and I said, well, who is Jesus? And you would say, well, you know, I think he's a nice guy. I think he's a godly man. I think he's a good example. I just want to tell you that's an impossible statement. You're standing on a pillar that cannot stand. You're standing on something that cannot be. God has made it so clear. You have to choose. You have to understand. Either he is who he says he is, or he is not. And there is no other space to live. I find myself thinking of Elijah who stood there at Mount Carmel, and he just said, hey, just choose. 
I mean, why do you waver between two opinions? Either God is God or He's not. There's no other space for you to live. And I'm just pleading with you today. Maybe today is your day of salvation. Maybe today I'm doing my very best to destroy your ability to stand on anything other than making a decision. That if you're trying to live in a middle ground, you're trying to live in some place of being, well, you know, I think he might be good, but I don't know if I believe he's God. You cannot stand there. It's, it, it's, it's a illogical. It's a destroyed argument. You cannot, you have to say, either he is who he is or he's not. Only choice. And today, if that's you, then we're inviting you into Christ. We're inviting you to believe upon Jesus. We're inviting you to say, okay, this is God's testimony, that he has given us eternal life, and that life is in his son. And if today is that day for you to believe that, to say, okay, I want to be that person who says, you know, okay, Jesus is, he's, he's God, he's, he, he came, he gave his life, he died on the cross, I believe, I place my life there. That's what the Bible holds out to you. This again is John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you believe, you won't perish. You'll have everlasting life. That's his testimony. That's what he's telling you. That's what he's inviting you into. That's what he's telling you that you can have today. And everything we just want to tell you that today, may God destroy any other space. May you become like C.S. Lewis, who gazed on this whole thing and said he just found himself being drugged into a place of believing in Jesus. Because like, I can't stand anywhere else. Either I'm going to have to believe it or I'm going to have to reject it altogether. I have no other place to be. And I just long that if that's you today, that God would meet you in that. Well, again, maybe that's somebody here this morning. Maybe you're watching online. That's you. We invite you into salvation. But for the follower of Jesus, there's still weight here. Because see, for some of you, you look on this whole thing and, and we think about, okay, that those who know Jesus, they're, they're saved. They get to be a part of this. But for some who are in this space, they still find themselves almost trying to live in this in-between ground almost trying to live in this place where they could believe, but almost not believe. And what I want to tell you is it's not possible for you either. That there is a place of just saying, okay, are you in or are you out? You know, that there's a place of saying, do you actually believe what he's saying? Because if you believe it, then you're his. Let's just notice how he says it. Go back and just follow in verse 12. We'll pick it up there. Actually, verse 11, because it just works to go together. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things, verse 13, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. There's a bunch there. We're going to have to come back to it and talk about it next time. But I just want to tell you, there's incredible security of just believing what God says. So try to think about it this way with me. And again, maybe if you're trying, you know, being, being saved this morning, or maybe if you're a follower of Jesus, understand it this way. For some of you, it's as if you're trying to live on, stand on two different pillars. You know, on one pillar, there's this place of saying, I believe. Jesus is God. He died on the cross, paid the price for our sin, but somehow you still are trying to stand over on this other pillar that says, well, well, maybe he's just a good guy. Maybe he's like a Moses or a David, or maybe he's like this, and, and you live in this ground that leaves you in this ambiguous place, but what we've just done is said, there's no pillar there. If you're trying to stand on Jesus being anything less than who he is, 
we are doing our best to destroy that pillar so that right now you're going to have to have a choice. Either I stand entirely on Christ or I step away. It's really my only choice. There's no other place for me to stand. There's no other place for me to go than, than to say, okay, you know, that, then I, I believe, and I, I wonder if God isn't drawing somebody out of some of the confusion and out of the lies that, that would just cause you, well, like, it's like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I go, my family goes to church, and I go, and I think I kind of believe, but I'm not sure I totally believe. You are living in an impossible place. Come, put your life fully on Christ believe that God has given us an eternal life and this life is in his son. And by believing that you find help, you find hope, and it would do good inside your life today. Well, we'll talk more about that next time, but let's just wind it up there. So you can close your Bibles, you can close your notebooks, whatever it is you have open. And I want to just lead you into a space that we're going to give you a moment to pray. Now, I wonder where this morning has found you. Now, honestly, it could be much more than I have any idea, but I want to say one more time, If today is the day of salvation for you, if God has destroyed your logical argument so that you recognize you only have two choices, either God is telling you the truth or he's a liar. That's all you got. That's all you got. May you come to the place that you recognize God is telling you the truth. He sent his son and life is found in Jesus. And if that could move you to believe upon him, then right now we're going to invite you just to quietly pray and and, and believe and ask him to be your savior. Now, maybe you're his, and yet, though you're his, you, you still try to live in this ambiguous place, like, well, you know, I don't know. Hey, may God destroy that and bring you fully into Christ, that you trust him, that you believe him, that you recognize this is God's testimony. This is what God has said, and it's all about Jesus. Now, for many of you, that's where you are, and, and in the midst of this, there's a resonation of truth. There's something that just speaks life to us, that leaves us into a place that we heard it. See, I asked you a question at the beginning. When God speaks, who listens? Who is listening? And God says, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to give you a testimony. I've given you life, and that life is in my son. And the question is, did you hear it? Do you, do you understand the weight of how wonderful that is? And if you do, it speaks life to us in ways that are so genuine and real. And I long for you to be that one that says, heard you. God, I I believe you. I believe what you've told me about Jesus. I believe who he is and, and just the life that is found there. So would you take a moment, talk to God about that? I'm going to do the same quiet moment. We're just going to ask God just to speak his word in and over our lives, and then we'll close together in worship. But quietly, would you talk to him right now in wherever he has met you in this morning?
God, thank you so much for your testimony to us that you have told us that you have given us life, eternal life. And the life that you have given us is in your Son. God, for any that are here watching online that are trying to stand in some place that is illogical, impossible, trying to embrace you as good but not God, trying to find some middle ground between the world and and, and Christianity, Lord, may you just destroy, obliterate that standing space and invite them to recognize it's, it's, it's they either believe you or they don't. You're either who you say you are or you're a liar. And God, I pray that they would believe you and they'd believe what you said and they'd be saved. For you said if we would believe you, if we would believe you, we would, we would have eternal life. God, rescue those who you're drawing today. Draw them into a true belief and, and just what you have given us in Christ. God, I bring brothers and sisters in Christ who find themselves also in a confusion about who you are, maybe trying to still embrace you as a good teacher and yet not really embracing that you are God, trying to hold some illogical space that doesn't work but is actually robbing them of what you have for them. Again, Lord, destroy that that standing so they'd recognize they, they can't stand there. They have to either accept what you said or step away. And God, I pray that you would cause them to stand, to stand on the, on the beautiful space of Christ, that Jesus, you're the message of God. You're the testimony of God. Life is in you, and, and to find our life in you. God, I pray that for these, and then I just pray for all who know you, that there would be just a resounding echo 